The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Our God and our Father, as we take upon our lips these words um, that reflect in the background the hope, a longing, a promise that you gave to the psalmist who wrote Psalm 72. But we now sing them in the light of the fulfillment of that promise, that guaranteed, assured promise that David's greater son would come to inaugurate and establish the kingdom of God. And Father, we thank you that that has begun, that David's greater son is indeed seated at your right hand and ruling over the nations and exerting his redemptive reign through the power of his spirit, applying the good news of his sacrifice and mighty resurrection. So, Father, make us mindful in this world in which we so often see visibly to our eyes the signs of evil and chaos. Still, it seems so much in control. Make us mindful that the reality is that Jesus rules, that the Messiah is on the throne at your right hand. And make us, therefore, hopeful as well as joyful and submissive servants of the King of Kings, Jesus, the Messiah. We pray in his name. Amen. may be seated. We continue our meditations in the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts. And again, I'm going to take you back to the other side of the joint, the hinge, to the conclusion of Luke's volume 1, the gospel according to Luke, uh, and read again a few verses that we considered a couple of weeks ago, uh, and then on to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, From Luke 24, when Jesus appears to a group of disciples in Jerusalem, we read in verse 44 that he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
A couple of weeks ago, we thought about that motif, that theme in Luke's gospel that Jesus demonstrated the reality of his victory over death in his bodily resurrection by many convincing proofs. I want to direct our attention for these few minutes to what he talked about during that span of 40 days. He was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Actually, Acts opens and closes with conversations and proclamations about the kingdom of God. We hear it here at the very beginning of Acts and the very last verse of Acts. Chapter 28, verse 31, we hear of Paul in chains in Rome, but free to accept visitors and telling all comers about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and doing so boldly and without hindrance. And in the intervening chapters, we read about the kingdom of God being proclaimed by Philip and by Paul in various places as well. And the same thing is true of Luke's gospel, the first, uh, the first of his two volumes. As early as the birth narratives, we hear the aged priest Zechariah, who would be the father of John the forerunner, celebrate the fulfillment of God's ancient promises that the Lord God of Israel has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's kingdom language. And if we're in any doubt about that, even before that, we've heard about the angel Gabriel sent to a virgin in Galilee, Mary, and assuring that virgin that the Lord God will give to her son the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And from Luke 4:43 and forward, we hear Jesus announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God repeatedly. Kingdom, in first century Jewish years, that had a political and military ring about it as they were ground under the heel of the Roman Empire, its political military complex, its committed commitment uh, to pagan religious pluralism. Uh, the early Jews in the Second Temple period savored the prospect of God's reign, God's rule invading the realm of pagan oppression and pagan injustice and pagan arrogance against the true and living God, the creator of all things, who had brought his people Israel into covenant with him. Oh, if only God would come and establish his kingdom of righteousness. It's about time. They probably felt it was maybe a little late even. Uh, and that's, that's what we hear in, in, again, Zechariah's eager expectation, the horn of salvation in the house of David. Uh, one through whom God will indeed deliver us from all of our enemies, that we may serve him in freedom and joy all our days. That was what they thought of. That's what, no doubt, we hear, uh, that's what was behind what uh, we heard in, in Luke 24 a couple of weeks ago when we thought about the Cleopas and his uh, fellow traveler who explained to that mysterious stranger whom we knew to be Jesus, but they didn't, how their hopes had been dashed days earlier. They thought that the redemption, the rescue of Israel, was going to happen as Jesus walked into Jerusalem with that entourage of pilgrims heading for 
celebration of Passover, the, the liberation feast of the history of Israel. We thought he was going to redeem Israel, but he's been rejected, handed over by our leaders to the Romans, executed. And now women among us are saying that they've seen an angel, a vision of angels, but they haven't seen Jesus. Um, they were looking for that kind of liberation. And it seems as if, as we'll get to in a few more weeks, it seems as if even after the resurrection, that's the mental picture that Jesus' closest friends have of the kingdom. They're they're about to ask him very soon, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is going to have to set them straight about that. Both their perception, their mental picture of the dimensions of the kingdom and their understanding of the power by which it would advance in the world needed some serious correction, but I'm going to save that for another one of these meditations. What I want to point out to you here is that for us who are reading along with Theophilus, volume one and into volume two, Luke's already given us a clue as to what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. You see, here in verse three, he sums up the more detailed discussion that we heard from Luke 24. That's what the kingdom is about in Jesus' teaching. Even if his friends didn't first get it, when Jesus says the kingdom of God, what he means is that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and that the apostles would be witnesses to these things and that he would send upon them what His father had promised power from on high. That's the good news of God's kingdom, foretold by John the baptizer, heralded by Jesus himself. So Luke sums up here in Acts 1-3, he sums up Jesus' whole beautiful biblical theological exposition of the whole Old Testament scriptures, law of Moses, prophets, the writings starting with Psalms. He sums it all up as... Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. When we learn to read the Bible the way Jesus taught his first friends and followers whom we would call as apostles and empower to be his witnesses, when we learn to read it the way Jesus teaches us to read it, we notice the kingdom is all about the king, first of all, right? It's about the Messiah. It's all about his personal activity, not about our activity, but his activity, his actions to establish the kingdom, to defend the people of God as kings are supposed to do, to establish God's reign and rule in justice as kings are called to do. There's a personal focus to the kingdom of God and it's focused on the king. We're called to allegiance to him and dependence upon him. We also see from Luke 24, if this is all about the kingdom, the surprising way in which the king has accomplished our rescue and our defense. It's this surprising way. He suffered. He suffered rejection by his own people and the leaders of his own people. He died under the Roman sentence of death. In fact, he died in the form of that anyone who knew the ancient scriptures, especially the book of Deuteronomy, knew as a form that symbolized condemnation by God. 
Anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, we will hear from Peter's lips that Jesus was hanged on a tree. Direct echo of Deuteronomy 21. And yet, by that utter defeat, he is our strong king. Because the fact that only his suffering in weakness and curse could possibly bring us rescue, deliverance, shows that we need deliverance from enemies stronger and more wicked than Rome. Stronger and more wicked than, in our day, global terrorism or radical Islam or anything else. Our worst enemies are our own stained and crooked hearts, which are in league with the prince of evil, unless Jesus comes in power to rescue us. And the only way, the most powerful way, the only way that could happen is the weakness of the cross. The Christ must suffer. And because he suffered, as Jesus said, the kingdom declaration is forgiveness of sins among all the nations. Forgiveness of sins in his name. The king's death was an atoning sacrifice that we needed, the only one that could accomplish it, to cleanse our records before the just tribunal of God, to purge our stained consciences of guilt. Forgiveness of sins to all peoples, all nations, all of us here. Many of us, most of us, I suspect, don't have a drop of Abrahamic blood or DNA in us. But we are children of Abraham. Forgiveness has been preached to us in the king's name. And Jesus says the kingdom is all about his rising from the dead, isn't it? Shows not only his innocence and now his indestructible life, but his royal authority. He has overpowered the last, most implacable, most inevitable, most, it seemed, inescapable enemy, death itself. Luke will soon record for us Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost when Peter, quoting from Psalm 16, uh, points out that this psalm shows that death could not keep its grip on Jesus. It could not hold him. The grave had him for a moment, but it had no right to keep him. He's the innocent one. He's the strong king. He's the one who died not for his own sins, but for us. Death could not possibly hold this king. And if you belong to Jesus, death cannot hold you forever either. And not only did Jesus conquer death in his resurrection, but as Luke implies in our text, when he talks about the day when Jesus was taken up, that's the end, that's the terminus point for the 40 days of his talking about the kingdom, Jesus ascended. Jesus ascended and established the kingdom promised to David by occupying the throne at the very right hand of God in heaven. Again, Keep glancing ahead. I I, I can't resist to Peter's Pentecost sermon. Peter explains it all there. He says that God had promised to David 
not only resurrection, which was not immediately fulfilled in David's experience, Peter says we have David's tomb to this day, but not just resurrection, he had promised to David to put one of his descendants on the throne forever. And Peter says that's precisely what God has done. Not an earthly throne in an earthly city that could be invaded and conquered by Rome or any other, any other military force. On the heavenly throne, of which David's throne in Jerusalem was just a faint, faint model. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110. Jesus is ruling over all. Jesus is the king over everything. And Jesus will exercise his royal power, especially through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Again, if we're mining Luke 24 for what does it mean when we, when we want to hear that Je- what did Jesus talk about when he talked about the kingdom for those 40 days, uh, we hear that Jesus says they're to wait till they're, they receive the Father's promise until they're clothed with power from on high. The power in which this king rules is so much stronger than military or economic forces. Peter quotes Psalm 110. That psalm actually goes on to say to the Messiah, to the king, to the enthroned one at the Father's right hand who is both king and priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The psalm says your people will offer themselves freely, will be free will, <coughs> free will offerings in the day of your power in their holy garments. Voluntary, joyful obedience. Armies and their physical weapons can suppress overt resistance and compel external compliant actions. Or at least they can bring vengeance on those who dare to resist. Money can buy conformity and cooperation if the price is right and if the target is weak of will. But only the sovereign spirit of God can take the news of inexplicable divine love, displayed in the weakness of abject suffering on a Roman cross, can take that news and invincibly carry it into the deepest recesses of human hearts and thereby transform the drives and the desires that move us and make us who we are. That's the power of this king. Isn't that why we're here in this place? Isn't that what drew us here? Nobody stuck a gun to your head, said, study at Westminster Seminary, California, or else. No, not at all. Not coercion. I suspect nobody offered you a cushy job with a big paycheck and many perks. Come to Westminster Seminary, California. Life will be easy. No, no, not that. What drew you here? Your people will be willing in the day of your power. How could we be willing? The power of the Spirit, that same power of the King, of his gospel, his almighty Spirit, that fortifies us and draws us here, is the power that has been fortifying our brother in Iran, Pastor Youssef Nadar Khani, pause on that last name, this brother that I'm sure you've heard in the news has been condemned to death, first charged with apostasy, now with other crimes, 
despite international pressure not yet released, as I checked a few minutes ago, threatened even in these last few days with a quick execution unless he recants his faith in Jesus. As we pray for him, as we pray for his family, as we pray for the church in Iran and other places, we also need to pause We need to realize how his stand shows the power of this king and the power of his kingdom. Jesus, the eternal son, the anointed of the Lord, so much stronger than the worst weapons that governments can wield. This king rules, and it's his word of grace that we are privileged to study here and to carry from this place to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. We bow before you and come to you through the intercession and the mediation of that beloved son who now sits at your right hand, who has become our brother and has become our faithful, merciful high priest who has become our sacrifice and is our ruler and our king. Father, we thank you for the surprising victory that Jesus won in the surprising way, the weakness of the cross, which is more powerful than human strength and wiser than human wisdom. And Father, we pray as you've captured our hearts that you will grant us the grace to continue to live in devotion to our king, in confidence in his power. And we pray this for our brother, uh, Pastor Nadar Khani, and his family at this time of special trial of their trust in you. Give him courage, give him boldness. If it please you, give him release that his ministry may continue, release to continue on this earth. But if not, give him joy and victory. If you take him to be with Christ, which for him is better by far. Glorify your name through the name of your beloved son and our mighty King Jesus. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.